it's, is somebody making a hot pocket? Someone's so being abducted. It's my husband. It's my husband. He just wants to go get ice. And I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> Hello. And thank you for joining the IPG Media Lab from each of our respective homes. I am your host, Scott Elcherson, and this week's episode was recorded on Wednesday, April 1st, 2020. We have a special co-host this week. Uh, Chad Stoller is here with me, UM's Global Chief Innovation Officer and my boss. Um, so Chad, welcome back to Floor 9. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Making the most of it. I think, I think we're all trying to do that, you know? Uh, we're finding new ways to live our lives. <laughs> This week, we have a packed episode on shopping, uh, looking at online and offline channels and how consumer behavior is changing and really what this all means for brands and marketers. And to help us with this conversation, uh, we have two experts in the space. First, we have William Margaritas, the Senior Vice President at Reprise Digital, and Amy Owen, the SVP of Shopper Marketing here at UM. So welcome both to floor nine. Thanks for having us. Um, It looks just like my kitchen, but... (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're glad to have you both here to uh, talk with us about this this topic that is very relevant to um, today's media uh, and advertising landscape. So I want to start the show off with with this question. Um, What are some changes in consumer behavior that we've seen over the past few weeks uh, that have been unexpected? In both physical retail as well as online retail, uh, Amy, we'll we'll start with you. What what have you seen in physical retail? From a retailer perspective, we've actually seen uh, a lot of consumer behavior changes. Um, a couple of the most unique that we've heard about is when people go into the store, if they are going into the store, um, they're avoiding uh, the cooler aisles. So they don't want to actually touch the handles on the aisles um, and buy either frozen goods or, um, say, like a soda beverage that's instant consumables. So what we're actually seeing Interesting. is them, yeah. So we're actually seeing them go down um, the aisles and getting more shelf-stable uh, products versus touching things that they can avoid. That's interesting. So hot pockets uh, might might be in risk here. Um, Will, what are you seeing from like an online perspective, in an e-commerce perspective, like, like any behavior chains that are like, unique uh, that uh, we should know about? Obviously, there have been more people shifting towards online since it's the only option. But two things that we've seen early on is, first, Amazon and Walmart have been the big winners here. Uh, The everything stores in general seem to really be where people are going. And this is because there's just trust in their supply chains above some of the smaller ones. And as people have heard that there are shipment issues, they've gone to where they think they're most likely to get something quickly. Mm -hmm. The other thing that we've seen, at least in the early days, is larger basket sizes. So when you talk to some of these retailers and when you talk to some of the brands, they're seeing larger basket sizes now than ever before because people are ordering in bulk for one product or they're ordering multiple products at the same time. So it's a good opportunity for brands to try to sneak things into those baskets and Impulse buys have always been something difficult to do online, but you're seeing more of those now as people are browsing and going, what else I need in the next month or two, putting that in their cart 
And instead of making the $30 order, the $50 order, you're seeing a lot more of $150 orders as people are just really getting ready to hunker down. One, uh, one other thing is that, uh, Amy, you had mentioned that Big Box was seeing a real surge in terms of memberships. And can you talk a little bit about that? And then at the same time, does that also mean that like grocery stores as well are probably seeing their loyalty programs grow? We haven't seen it with grocery so much. Uh, we have actually seen it more with the big bulk stores or kind of like the, the equivalent to a Costco. So a BG's would definitely be up there in a Sam's Club. I think by default, because you're going to Sam's Club, it's usually within a five mile radius of a Walmart store that you're going to see people automatically go to Walmart. But I don't think there's any uh, specific loyalty to the actual Walmart, Walmart itself. It's more of those other types of stores. That's super interesting. We are really living um, in in a whole new world, um, where ch- like consumer behavior is is rapidly changing. Um, and with that, I want to dive straight into uh, the recent report that will your, your your team came out with. So, let's dive in. Absolutely. So uh, obviously, we're all working from home. We're aware that there's a lot going on in the world. That's very rapidly changing uh, pretty much every situation and shopping is one of the big ones. So this report was to help brands get ahead as best in this landscape as you can get ahead of the cons- the changes in consumers and how they're actually looking for products, how they're finding products, and more importantly, how they're buying those products. It's not the easiest thing to do because it does feel like every day is bringing something new. But we took a look back at what happened in the days of SARS and what happened in China, which is several weeks to months ahead of us with this current COVID-19 and what we can learn from them and then what brands can take away and what they actually need to do to make sure that they are getting through this period better than their competitors. That is, it sounds like a very exciting report. Uh, and I, and I've, I've already read it twice. <laughs> it depends how much you love e-commerce. But the thing but the thing is, Will, is that everybody really does love e-commerce. And it's actually, I think it's been one of those behaviors that when people were spending their, especially during their first week of people, especially people who had to stay in place, is that that was something to do. And uh, I think that there's a lot of different products that people were looking for. But more importantly, there was clearly products that were kind of going going out of stock quicker than others or we had issues with shipping and, and so forth. Are there any, any high level kind of observations or things that you can summarize from that? Yeah, absolutely. So the start was interesting, right? Because let's even just compare it to in-store traffic and in-store traffic had been down year over year in part because everyone's buying more online than they had been last year. And then when news really started to break and people started taking this seriously, you saw a sudden surge in in in-store traffic because everyone was running out to buy the toilet paper while they thought it was still available. Uh, That lasted for a couple of days and then it was that heavy shift to e-commerce. And those of you that live in Manhattan can probably attest, you started coming home and looking in your lobby and it looked like it was Christmas for the most part. And that's sort of what this has been for brands. It's been an unexpected, Black Friday, Cyber Monday, Prime Day, where all of a sudden they're getting months worth of demand in a period of weeks. And that's been very difficult for them to stay ahead of. Uh, Just to give you some numbers that are out there, uh, ibuprofen was up 236% year over year. Disinfecting wipes, 353%. So these are items that suddenly everyone was looking for and stock became difficult. And it hasn't just been them, as you've all seen, 
getting anything has become more difficult right now. And on those numbers that you're bringing up, those are all e-commerce numbers. Correct. Right. So like Amy, I mean, did you see the same categories pop? And I mean, and then you probably also saw some other things that were that that we know of things that we know about, but then there's things that we just don't know about at all. Yeah, it's it's actually been interesting from the shopper space and the mentality where we actually have a lot of out of stock problems as well, where I mean, the laundry category, no one could get their hands on anything. I know we talked about toilet paper and we'll continue to talk about toilet paper. Um, but then it, then it's also really interesting uh, products, um, more of like the future consumption of people stocking up and not wanting to leave their homes for quite some time. So really buying the huge massive bags, bags of candy or buying the um, two liter um, soda bottles. Um, that ironically, in the past, they might have wanted to start buying, you know, just a, a soda here or there if they were um, shopping and they were they were parched and they really needed something. So uh, we're actually seeing a lot of change of shopper behaviors along with the out of stock issues that we're seeing. But what I'm curious about, though, is that in that particular case where there are these items that people are stocking up on, right? And I don't want to use the word hoarding, but like, the, it, I mean, it, it's just hoarding has, I think, become a pretty loose verb about people who are just trying to buy things for what they need to hunker down in place. But the fact is, is that when all of a sudden this supply isn't available anymore, you know, people immediately then run to online channels. And so maybe now people are starting to buy categories of things that they didn't normally buy online. And maybe will in that particular case, I don't know if you have a point of view on this, but are there are there a lot of brands that like, you know, never really prioritized e-commerce because they just basically said no one's buying laundry detergent, you know, or no one's buying all this flour online because it could take, you know, it could be so expensive to ship or it just seems like a, a big burden. They'd rather pick it up themselves or something. And that's entirely true. People have been shifting what they're purchasing, right? They're trying to buy in bulk. They're trying to buy the staples that it used to just be, oh, on the way home from work, I'm going to stop by Walmart or I'm going to drive by a Kroger. I don't need to get that. Now that it is, and you're right, it's not hoarding. It's more, I'm going to need that. It's not available near me. Where can I get it? Uh, just to anecdotally, I actually have four seven pound cans of beans sitting next to me that <laughs> I don't think I entirely meant to buy. But at the very least, Bush's probably never planned for people to be buying seven pound cans of beans online. And now all of a sudden, this is something that became an urge and that they needed to be capitalizing on to make sure that it's their seven pound cans of beans that people are rushing out and buying. So one of the things that you talk about, Will, and you brought this up in your report, is that if there are brands that all of a sudden run out of stock on something, and and this is something that I've always found very interesting, which is that brands can drive consumers to popular e-commerce sites such as Amazon, and then if the product isn't available and the consumer doesn't buy it, their algorithm interprets that as a lack of interest or a lack of relevance in the product. So if so, basically, if the physical inventory isn't there. Amazon will judge that as the interest is low and then you'll lose your search ranking? That's pretty much how it works. And now Amazon's algorithm is a black box, but a lot of work has been going into researching how it works. And you're correct. It tries to serve the consumer what it thinks the consumer will buy. It thinks the consumer will buy what other consumers have also bought, and it knows what they've bought based on history. So it's sort of that flywheel, right? The more people that are buying something, the higher it goes up in search ranking, the higher it is in search ranking, the more people that are buying it. 
when your product goes dark, when you don't have stock, people are clicking in, they're looking at it, and either it's not there, or it might be there, but it's going to ship in two months, or it might be there, but a third party is selling it, and they're selling it at an incorrect price, and now the consumer is going back to the search and going and buying something else. And that's where all of a sudden those competitor products are lifted up, and the individual brand's product starts sinking in those search rankings. And that's the worst thing that can happen for you on Amazon because, of course, it's then getting that flywheel in reverse and it's a negative spiral. So what do, what do, brand, what do brands do in that situation, especially if you're like a CPG and maybe you have you know hundreds of brands, or not hundreds of brands, but hundreds of products that, that could be available? First and foremost, we always recommend having a secondary supply chain that you can hopefully switch over to. Uh, in the past, this was important because Amazon's got a habit of delisting certain items or preventing advertising from certain items. And now, of course, it's important because getting the items to Amazon fulfillment centers is not as reliable as it used to be. So we recommend brands work with outside companies to have that backup. So if Amazon goes dark, they can flip over and have someone else that's actually fulfilling those products and keeping it live. If that's not possible, there are ways to delist those products. If you're a seller instead of a vendor, it's easier, but you can turn that actual listing off and therefore there is no history. So when it's back in stock and you turn it back on, it's like nothing ever happened. So Will, in that particular case though, are there tools that are in place that are just automating the, the like basically in, in as much real time as possible is automating stock or, or, or monitoring stock inventories and then being able to flip these switches for you. I just feel like the, that Amazon ranking has gotta be critical for some of these brands. It's absolutely critical, and you'd hope that there would be tools and more ways to do this. Unfortunately, most of this is a gap that needs to be filled either with careful human monitoring or by using some of the external vendors that are out there like Profitero that are watching this for you and can send you an immediate email alert. The main thing we're recommending, though, is that brands do treat this like it's Prime Day. They need to set up a war room. They need to actually have their sales teams and their media teams and their brand teams doing a stand-up, understanding what's going on with inventory, what's going on with where revenue is, and adjusting their plan for the day or the week based around the most current information. Because, again, just like Prime Day, things are changing on an hour-to-hour -hour basis with these retailers four week or two two month long prime day um that seems a lot <laughs> i've seen that like that seems like that seems like super stressful to kind of keep up um for a brand and, and it might turn them off to kind of like kind of like position it like that but i guess my my last question on this is that i guess if you are a brand and you lose that search ranking and that share like what what are the long-term, you know, I guess, um, um, outcomes of that? Like how much longer will it take to actually gain that share back if you, during this time, give it up? It depends on how much you give up. It can absolutely take months because if your competitors are smart, they're doing everything they can to make sure that they're keeping those spots. And that includes uh, paying to make sure that they're winning all of the sponsored placements because on Amazon, the sponsor, the history for the sponsored placements counts organically. So if you lose it, the easiest way to get it back, unfortunately, is to start overpaying and making sure the products that sunk are now the first, second, or third place by paying your way to the top. Therefore, more people are clicking in, more people are buying it. It sort of 
tricking the algorithm into thinking that it deserves to be at that top spot. Of course, it depends on how much they've slipped and how long they were slipping for and how smart their competitors were to take over that spot. But it can take a very long time. Uh, just getting any of those spots back is an uphill battle because everyone's fighting for them. Unfortunately, the best way to do it is to pay. If you're paying to have those top three spots on the search, that means more people will be clicking in because upwards of 65% of clicks happen in those first three spots. Therefore, you're getting that history back pretty rapidly. So brands that are losing spots now might have to overpay to get it back in the future. Are there are there brands that are just like sniping for products that you know, they, they're identifying that there's low inventory risks or things like that, and they're just kind of turning up their spend right at those opportune moments? We're seeing it category by category, and there are definitely some large brands that have caught on and are doing this. Where you're seeing it most are these small, little, nimble competitor brands, the ones that are coming out of nowhere. It's a brand name that probably no one's ever heard of, but it's got someone that's just sitting there all day paying close attention, figuring out where the gaps are and going right for it. So one instance is coffee machines. And we've actually seen small brands that were nowhere to be found on the first page back in February, all of a sudden rising up and having a lot of the top spots in March because they're just really capitalizing on the holes. Yeah, it's 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 really interesting to kind of think about just like how critical it is to maintain relevancy uh, during a time like this um, when there is a lot of time or, you know, or I guess like thought from brands and marketers to uh, potentially pull back and kind of, uh, you know, reserve and hold out on spend. Um, there are real, you know, pros and cons to to both and um, kind of had to think about a short-term strategy, but also then what are those long-term results that um, are going to be the outcome of that um, of that move. It's going to have to kind of think about both in, in that world. Um, but I do want to transition this conversation a little bit away from Amazon, but towards some other competitive, you know, retailers that are out there thinking about Target, Walmart, um, and others, even Dollar General. Um, so, you know, Amy, kind of thinking about the the offline version of this conversation, like what are you seeing from um, our, our media partners like Target and Walmart? Um, how are they responding to uh, this 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 explosion in shopper uh, consumer behavior and how fast it's changing. Definitely been interesting. They have actually um, been turned on their heads a little bit because they, um, from a even like a, a big retailer perspective, did not expect to have stock issues, even with the big guys. And so there's a lot of talk and conversation of if people are, you know, like that one wave where they went into the store and now maybe they're potentially avoiding the store, what's the void and how do we get people to still buy product and still buy it at their given retailer? So um, had a conversation, a really good one uh, with Dollar General earlier, actually today, um, and they were actually talking about how do you create um, in the short term or even the long term uh, grocery pickup. And so how do you actually, you know, click to collect and, and pick up, uh, you know, place an order and, and pick it up at curbside? And so that's something where in the dollar um, class of trade, Dollar General doesn't do that. They are, it's like a one-stop shop. It's, a, it's more of a filler trip. It's not a stock up mission. 
Um, so they're actually trying to get into um, the, the game, so to speak, uh, because Walmart actually has that already, but it's it's still growing and there's some stores that don't have that. So they're looking to expedite and Target tries to do it, uh, but people don't think it's Target is, is kind of an order and pickup. Uh, you probably saw a lot of those commercials around the Super Bowl time where Walmart and Target were both competing with each other. Um, so there's a lot of that going on of how to get the product in someone's hand who doesn't necessarily want to touch things or, or be in the store. Um, so I don't think it was anything on the near term roadmap, but it's something that they have to think about and they're forced to think about it. And how quickly have they been able to get it together to do that? So um, not as quickly as one could imagine or, or one would hope for. And so a lot of um, what's been happening in the space is media um, and all sorts of supply chain was paused for a while. And so the reason being is because everything happened so quickly and, and, you know, Will was talking a little bit earlier about how everything flew off the shelf and now you're, you're left, left with nothing. So they actually needed to take a step back and understand supply chain. I mean, we were talking to one of our clients earlier today saying that delivery men were showing up to drive trucks and the trucks weren't there because the retailer was a mess in trying to figure out their supply chain. So there's a lot that's actually impacting and it's almost like a ripple effect uh, because then they actually look into their online you know, experience and some of them don't have an online experience as savvy as Amazon. So then they think of the click and collect. So I think they're scrambling a little bit, but I think um, the good news is being kind of where we sit today as an agency, we could see both sides and we could help our clients craft that story and teach almost the retailer what's going on and, and what we're seeing across the board in the industry to hopefully get hopefully get them, excuse me, to a better spot. Okay, but I want to talk I want to talk a little bit more about click and collect because I think click and collect is interesting. I think that you're you're right um, in terms of the observation that you had before, which is like, it's kind of clunky. Like some people, they, they don't take advantage of it. And I also wonder if some people don't take advantage of it for reasons such as what if they don't have the items that they want, like say they may not have confidence in it, but also, you know, shopping is tends to be social, and especially with with stores like Target. Target wants to wants shopping to be part of the experience. I mean, that's certainly the brand image that they put out there. But like the numbers always seem to be so remarkably low about uh, groceries that are fulfilled or groceries that are purchased through some form of e-commerce. Like I think in 2020, the latest number that I saw because I tried to look up something before this podcast, it showed it was 10%. And I feel like five years ago, I looked up a number and it was like 7% or 8%. Why is it so slow? And are we in a time now where we're going to encourage more people to try this? And then maybe is that going to kind of start tipping an accelerated adoption? Well, I read your report as well. And I think the, the piece that I take away from both the report and then also kind of just my observation in general is that when you're working with an Amazon, it's the user experience and a lot of the other experiences are pretty clunky. And so having mm -hmm. a conversation with someone who is trying to download a shipped or in Instacart nowadays, there's a lot of loopholes that you have to jump through or I guess hurdles that you have to jump through in order to even download the app and understand it and educate. And so Amazon, you sign on, you it's a search, you, you kind of type it in and, and you end up getting with the product. 
So that's easy. And I think that's why it's taking so long. Um, and I totally forgot your second question. My second question is, is <laughs> it's totally fair because Amy, because what we're doing is we're, we're answering the questions and then no, we're, you're answering them before we put the questions in, which is amazing. This is like an episode of inception. <laughs> I'm, I'm actually having a lot of fun. This is the most fun I've had since I've been told. <laughs> well, the question is, and, and if Adam was here, Adam, Adam would debate me on it because we both can't get our heads around how to formalize this kind of observation that we're making. And Josh Locock even makes it more confusing with the way that he approaches it. But one of the things that we're finding is, is that COVID's forcing people to change some of their behaviors. And some of those behaviors, they work in, in two different ways. I'm going to try this out on you. One of them is, is that it's forcing people to change their behaviors because it's just things aren't available to them the way that they want to do things. So for instance, people right now, there's a might be a reluctance to go to the grocery store and go inside. So now people might say, okay, I'm going to try this click and collect methodology. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to give it a shot and then maybe it'll work. And then maybe that accelerates that. But the second thing, and Will, I'm curious, but your perspective about this as well, because especially when it comes to product listings and things like this, is that I truly believe that this, this whole situation is the first real fact, and this came a little bit out of the David Shim conversation last week, where, where because now we're shopping based on, we're valuing necessity and availability higher than brand preference right now. So now all of a sudden choices that people have been making for years based on products that they love and they love the products, regardless if there is a cheaper product that is comparable or maybe another product that even tastes better or is, or is, or is better. So now all of a sudden, just because, because something is there, people are just going to take it and they're going to try it. So brands that have had for a really, really long time, an audience of very, very loyal customers. I think that, I think things are at risk. So I think both of you have an answer on something like this, or, or I hope so. Uh, somebody's got to help me get there. But I, I do think that we're, we're, you know, this is something that's just becoming very interesting. Yeah. And I think from, um, you know, from a shopper perspective, this is going to change the way people are interacting with brands and it will change how they're interacting with stores and how they're shopping. And so, I, I mean, there are a lot of media tactics and offerings that are in the store that you actually have to interact with and touch and hold and unlock to get samples or, or coupons. And so I don't really see people touching those anytime soon. Um, but then also from a, you know, overarching perspective on the acceleration itself, I mean, there are reports saying the number one app that was actually downloaded was Instacart followed by, followed, followed by uh, the Walmart's um, OG or online grocery app, and then also shipped. So there are people that are making that move to avoid that human contact. And I think, honestly, some of them are going to like it after they learn how to use it. So to the first point, I actually saw a Harris poll that showed that right now, 27% of Americans are more likely to order groceries online than buy in person, which it's never been that high before. Actually, below 50, it's more like a little bit over a third are willing to do that. So it's definitely new behaviors. It's definitely things that people are figuring out. Hey, this is actually pretty easy. I'm getting my groceries delivered right to my door. And I do think that's going to be sticky. To your second point about how people might be less brand loyal and what happens there. If you actually start looking around, particularly on Amazon, where there's a lot of opportunity for branding, usually the big brands do the worst job. They're the ones that have put up content five years ago. They think it's fine. They're not refreshing it. It doesn't have the same level of attention to detail that 
their .com has or that the packaging has. And I've actually seen brands, big brands, spell their own brand names wrong before. And then these small brands that are maybe the second choice but are still in stock have these great, very professional-looking pages, great content that makes them look like they might actually be a decent substitute. And people are going to be more likely to convert because they're building up that level of trust by having credible content up there and by also being the only ones in stock. So I do think there probably is a lot of trial of different brands right now, and that will be sticky too, where a lot of these brands that have invested in their e-commerce presence will be reaping rewards and getting people to permanently shift over. So, you know what, Will, that brings up an interesting fact. So, you know, in a way, product reviews, comments, um, questions, and people answering questions, those are probably never been more valuable than ever before for a lot of challenger brands. Mm-hmm. And the challenger brands are always the best at it. You will rarely see a challenger brand not interacting with the consumers in some manner, but large brands will leave one-star reviews up on the front of their page without any sort of response for years. It's like the this idea of like the impossible not happening. I think we said last week on the episode it was you know it, it would be impossible for sports to be canceled sports got canceled the olympics (laughs) got postponed having like that same thought process into like an e-commerce situation you know there is a real risk where like the impossible might happen in the e-commerce um business because uh people weren't prepared for it. Something that's interesting is that there are probably people out there. It was funny. I had a, I was having a conversation with Eve LaShaw and I was, I was, um, I was telling her this theory about brand loyalty and stuff. And I made this comment to her where I said, I said, uh, you know, toilet paper, people, people have probably been buying the same toilet paper for years, et cetera, et cetera. Then I said, that's actually probably not a good example. And she said a lot of, as you know, Eve, a lot of people like their toilet paper brand. Right. But the thing is like toilet paper's gone right now. (laughs) You're buying the toilet paper that is there. And it's like, I've been going to this one particular grocery store and we get there early in the morning by eight o'clock. There's no toilet paper anywhere. There's no paper towels anywhere. You can't even buy flour. And by the way, like my flour choice, I, there's a flat, I, I know baking and I make pizza and I do all that stuff. There's no flour. The next flour I'm going to buy is the flour that's there. And I feel that like the same thing, if that was to happen in e-commerce where there are brands that treat it as just another channel. And then all of a sudden, if it's not there and something like this happens, the next, the, the, whoever shows up next is probably going to get that business. Anecdotally, I was at the supermarket at eight o'clock on Sunday and I needed flour to make banana bread. The only flour they had was a $27 bag of almond flour. And yes, I now have the most expensive (laughs) banana bread ever made. It's exquisite. (laughs) I had to buy what they had. And that brand that made the $27 delicious almond flour definitely got a purchase that they wouldn't have had otherwise. Exactly. In fact, you probably are now seeing more types of flour that you knew existed. I saw coconut flour. I was in your same situation, but I wasn't that guy. <laughs> I, let it, I let it go. I had a conversation with a, uh, a venture guy last night who is involved in a lot of direct-to-consumer brands, and I asked him how it's going. And he said, well, if you're a direct-to-consumer brand that's been in business for the last four or five years, you're doing pretty well because you know exactly what to do in a situation like this. If you're not, you're, you're in trouble. You're in trouble right now. And so this is something that uh, it goes to show you the power of the true power of omnichannel and the true power of owning your own distribution system. 
like to that point, is that a in trouble because they don't have the the like the infrastructure built out to 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 actually support and meet this demand? Is it like a lack of experience, or is it just because like they're not well known that they're more struggling with just being a brand that can be bought and have awareness during this time versus the infrastructure issues that they're facing? So, so we didn't go into details on it, but the, the, the insights that I got out of it is one is, is that when you've been doing it long enough, you become really good at it and you have a lot of partners. So you don't, you're not trying to do all of it yourself. You know, I think that was one. And then the second thing is, is that most of these D to C brands, the, especially the ones that go in like, you know, personal care and stuff like that, you are now finding that you've exhausted your D to C channels. And now what you have to do is you have to find your physical retail partnerships. So what's happening is, is you're diversified a little bit. And so you're in some of these other areas. So that might take some of the burden, uh, so, you know, some of the burden directly off that brand. But that's probably not a bad conversation, maybe that, uh, you know, we can look in a future podcast is to bring somebody on right now from that yeah, sector. that would that would be great. Um, and I think just to kind of round out that like that section, um, these on-demand delivery services, I think all of them, Instacart, Shipt, um, GoPuff, they're going to be having record days. I mean, I don't. I think they're going to be having the most sales they've ever had in their entire company's history uh, over these next few months, as people, um, as you mentioned earlier, are forced to adopt um, and kind of uh, adopt these new platforms. And they happen to be the ones that are able to provide the service um, that is needed during this time. You know, something that I also think is interesting is that some of these delivery companies are also just addressing addressing the elephant that's in the room. So like I know in Australia right now, Pizza Hut is basically putting out messaging that basically talks about how the pizza isn't touched and then it's left for you, right? Where, where there's no human contact in terms of the delivery. So I think that that's something that's interesting too, is that with a lot of these companies is that they're taking advantage of messaging to address people's concerns and then providing them with some, with some reassurance. Yeah, I was seeing a new campaign from Uber Eats where they're actually giving you the option to just leave it on your front porch and have your doorbell rung. So I think that's going to start rolling out. And I think I actually honestly just saw an email come through from Seamless saying the same thing. And then here's five dollars off. So you should be still using us um, and we're not touching your food. We have gloves on. We're leaving it at the door. Little Caesars is doing what Pizza Hut's doing as well, where I was seeing commercials today that they take it out of the oven and it's never touched again. And that's how it's always been. Right. Well, you know, the, the also some of the things that I also think are very interesting is that, you know, talking about like this delivery economy, you know, also what's going on with the restaurant business is also fascinating where these like and so going back to another possible, you know, business shift that might that might happen is is that a lot of these restaurants have resisted doing delivery resisted doing takeout but now all of a sudden they're forced to do it and now maybe now maybe now they're actually looking at this and saying okay wait maybe this is a viable business absolutely Absolutely. I think, you know, we're, we're already starting to see it um, with some with some higher end restaurants. Uh, there's a restaurant called Cannels out in Seattle, which you know, we know Seattle was the uh, first city to have a confirmed case of uh, coronavirus. And they were they shut down their their tasting room. You know, they they pivoted immediately into three new concepts, which was breakfast, which was uh, schmears and bagels. Um, and then they had um burgers and burgers and fries for lunch uh and now they're thinking about how can they continue to iterate on these new concepts and you know do curbside pickup or some sort of delivery so that way one they can keep their staff employed but then two um keep their business 
like alive during this time because obviously like they realized nobody's going to a sit down fine dining restaurant uh, for like the next you know potentially three months. So what what do they do uh, to kind of keep themselves alive? And they're they're you know similar to you know a, an e commerce channel online. They are every day tweaking menus, tweaking like the business model, tweaking the way that you know people pick up and order the the food. Um, and they're learning every single day. And I think the biggest learning that they had was, you know, the, the technology, like to actually integrate pickup and delivery, um, seems to be the biggest kind of, um, challenge for these restaurants because they aren't set up to do that. You know, they're set up to, 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 to provide hospitality. Um, they're not there to set up to do like the back end infrastructure of connecting orders to a delivery system to like their kitchen to make it. So, you know, and, and yeah, and, and Scott, uh, to your point, and I'm sorry, sorry to interrupt you, but like the thing is, is that it's one thing for them to say, okay, this is a difficult thing for me to do, but at the same time, is it worth me surrendering 30% commission rates to services like Grubhub, Uber Eat? I mean, I don't know what they all are, but I do know that they hover around like 20 to 30%, and that's, that's a lot of money to give up in that particular case. But one thing that I do think is interesting is that Uber Eats, when it first started, you know, remember it was always about curated meals. So it allowed restaurants to kind of learn how to get into this business. It was about just saying, okay, today we're going to only offer this. So restaurants could manage, you know, the supplies that they needed, the, you know, the produce that they needed, the food that they needed, et cetera, et cetera, just to output uh, that, that type of stuff. I also saw that the, those services are, a lot of them are suspending their uh, commissions uh, to help keep the restaurants going, especially this past week where that's usually the, ma the make or break week chat to that point i think that's a a really interesting kind of strategy a lot of brands that are thinking about making this transition online is what is that one product that they could potentially be their e-commerce product kind of similar to like a restaurant offering like a single meal for a day you know knowing that a brand is not going to get their entire portfolio online in the next three months or excuse me like the next three weeks like what is like that one single brand or product that you could potentially set up online and offer as delivery as um, a start to kind of have uh, your brand have like a larger e-commerce presence in a time when uh, this is how consumers are going to be shopping. I think that's a great question for Will because you know, you're in situations where you're working with some clients where their e-commerce offering is a little light or maybe it's like non-existent or maybe they tried it in the past and they might be reluctant, um, you know, reluctant to do something. What do you advise them to do? Do something. <laughs> it's definitely do something. And I know a lot of brands have tested e-commerce and for one reason or another, it didn't work for them. It might be they didn't feel it extended well to their brand or they couldn't get the supply chain right. But I do think it's important now to get something out there because we know for the next month, the foot traffic is going to be non-existent. And who knows what's going to happen after May if we're allowed to open up a lot of these stores, if people will return. But what I do think we'll see happen is what happened in 2008. And 2008, we obviously didn't have the health issues, but we saw a big change in consumer spending. And one of the things that happened was small luxuries became big, big, uh, big business. So consumers weren't going to go out and buy themselves the trip to Mexico. They weren't going to go buy the new car, but they started doing little things to treat themselves. Instead of the 
$8 mascara. They might have been buying the $12 or the $20 mascara uh, and just finding those tiny little luxuries that fit within their budget. And I think that's where brands need to be concentrating because right now, lots of people have those seven pound cans of beans in their house. They've got their stockpiles. <laughs> it's people are still going to be looking to treat themselves to something. And if you're a brand that's looking to get online, you need to find that one item or small handful of items that you think people will really want now because they're stuck at home. They still want to have something that makes them feel good. That's not a necessity. And the brands that can figure that out and get that in front of consumers will do very nicely in the back half of this month. I also had another thought from my perspective, and it's been kind of brewing a little bit, but I think that it actually applies to the restaurants and it also applies to grocery. And it's all about the solution for the given shopper. And so I live on Long Island. I have a restaurant by me. It's a high-end restaurant. Um, and they're actually selling a package deal where you're getting a meal for a family of four. It comes with alcoholic beverages and you also get candles. Something along those lines. Um, that being said, like if your if your brand isn't well equipped online, and this might be a poor example, but if you are you know in the CPG space and you sell jelly and you're not doing well, but your um, comprehensive or not comprehensive, your complementary uh, product of bread is doing well, sell a solution and really create that kind of tight knit um, you know purchase behavior. So you're making it easier for the shopper. And then they're going to be more prone to actually buying the package versus saying, I want this type of bread. I want that type of jelly and really kind of roll it all together. And I think that's something where when we're talking to retailers, they're trying to do that. I know Amazon's trying to do that, but they haven't gotten necessarily there. Well, but, but I think, I think, I think what you're, what you're talking about is that a lot of these places that you, you don't necessarily always go for the food, you go for the experience. So these places are thinking about how can they package up part of their experience. And it's nice because you're essentially taking home that dinner that you might go to, you know, on, on a Friday night and you're just taking it home and you're just moving the experience with you. And maybe you're even sharing it with others. You know, I, some, one of the things that I, I thought was interesting is I heard two stories about, um, the, fir the first one that I heard about, and, and this is also maybe good for both of you, because um, so Lululemon, uh, I guess they just announced their earnings. They were actually really interesting earnings because uh, basically they were just talking about how people were buying all of this stuff. And regardless, I don't know if that had anything to do with COVID. Maybe people are just buying their, buying their stuff online. But they immediately turned all of their existing stores, the ones that they closed down, into shipping centers and fulfillment centers. Because I guess, you know, if you think about where, where is your inventory, well, your inventory is all over the place. So I don't know if you guys have heard anything similar to that. And then um, the other thing that I heard is I think it's Jimmy John's who is actually turning their stores, not only their, I guess their, the, they have their existing sandwich shops, but now they're just selling bread. So what they were doing is they're basically turning themselves into kind of like a daily grocery stop because they also know that, you know, people can't buy flour and people might not be able to buy bread in their stores so in grocery stores so they're just providing another alternative alternative thing there and what's nice about that is that that keeps somebody coming back into your store and doesn't break your ritual of constantly going there because there's a lot of rituals that are also going to be broken for, from people visiting physical locations and to the first point with lululemon that's a model that's actually been out there for a long time. So about a decade ago, Aldo Shoes had this model where they were trying to prove e-commerce out. 
and had the exact same point of view. They already have inventory in all of their brick and mortar stores. Why do we need to reinvent the wheel? Let's just utilize that. And they did a big case study and had a lot of fanfare when you ordered online. It would connect you with a store that had it in inventory and an associate that maybe it was a downtime would find a way to get the product shipped out to you. That didn't last in part because there were just issues with stock. So it might say that the product was in the store, but maybe they couldn't find it. Maybe it had been damaged, uh, led to some issues like that. But it did help them prove out that e-commerce was viable without building a centralized fulfillment option, which they moved to once they hit a critical mass. I think in a time like this, it makes a lot of sense to do it because no fulfillment option has really been reliable. And if you have the store, you have the inventory, you have people that can ship it, it'll let you keep your stock up longer. Always great to kind of reflect on our past to see if we can't, uh, you know, find insights that can apply today uh, for our times. And and with that, I do want to move into um, our our final few questions here uh, on 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 this episode. Uh, we've talked a lot about this, um, you know, brand recommendations and what brands should be doing. Um, but if there were one or two recommendations that you would leave uh, brands and marketers with uh, when it comes both to online and offline shopping uh, in, t- in today's environments, like what would those actionable recommendations be? Yeah, there's actually a couple of things that we've been telling our clients because, I'm, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of the retail spaces from a media perspective been on hold or pause. And so... By unpausing and pressing that button, we really shouldn't just turn back on media. We really need to look at consumer behaviors and how they're changing and how people are interacting with media. It's not going to be the same. So that's something we really have to take into consideration. We also have to take into consideration um, creative and content, what the messaging is. We actually had a client that was advertising to go on road trips, which clearly we're not going to be able to do now because we really can't socialize. So those two really big things, along with the stock issues that we talked about earlier, are really, you know, something that we should be considering before we're even re, I guess, reactivating media um, for future. I'd say one of the main things is to resist the temptation to go dark. I saw a great quote from Tim Armstrong earlier today that this is the time in recent history that has the highest percentage of media consumption, but also the lowest advertising spend. The consumers are still out there. They're still spending their time online, researching, watching, interacting. Uh, And a lot of the smart brands are not really pulling back their spend a huge amount. They're shifting it. They're finding ways to reach the consumer where the consumer now is because We're a captive audience and our habits have changed, but we're still there consuming all of that media and spending more time in front of screens probably now than ever before. Well, I think what Will, what Will just said has been harping on something that I've been kind of talking a lot about lately, which is that there's never been a better time for innovation. You know, we have a lot of brands that right now are looking at budgets where they can't reach them with their initial and original plans, such as their budgets that were allocated towards sports. And what they've wanted to do is a lot of them, you know, there's, there's, there's projects that they've always wanted to take on. There's, um, you know, innovation trials that they've wanted to do. And we're already having great conversations with clients about, okay, let, this is the time to try this. Because I think that that quote from Tim Armstrong is totally right on, which is like, there's never, there's never been more attention that's available. And by the way, it's not limited to day parts right now, right now it's on, 
right? And we are looking for things. And, you know, there's, um, there's so much that, that people can do. They just have, they just have to ask right now. Absolutely. Um, so the last thing I'll just ask is, and this is what, we, what we've been asking everybody, if this is a fun one to end on, um, what are some video conferencing hacks that you can share um, with everyone that you have found useful uh, over these past two and a half, three weeks of, of working from home, knowing that we have about 30 more days, give or take, uh, to go. Uh, so Will, anything that you have found uh, helpful for you? Yes, calling in instead of using the app so you have a reason to not be on camera. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> or potentially because the phone lines are clogged, just not even showing up for the meeting in general. So, you know, got to free up your day somehow. <laughs> um, Amy, uh, how about yourself? Um, um, I would say tell your significant other not to get ice when you're on, on a call. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but another um, hack that we've actually learned is know when you're on mute and not on mute. Because <laughs> um, I've heard a lot of interesting conversations that probably shouldn't have been heard. So that's definitely one of the, one of the top ones I would recommend. <laughs> Chad, how about yourself? Anything that you've learned so far? I've, I've learned that it makes sense to have two sets of headphones, one that's paired to your computer, another one that's paired to your phone. But what I think is even better is always have a good Zoom background because I feel like people could use a laugh these days when they, um, when they start a video conference. And I think it also breaks the monotony of people talking about how they're getting through everything and so forth. And that's not to say that we don't want to hear about that, but it's, I think people want to get back to just knowing that they can just have a good meeting. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so just try to lighten the mood a little bit. I, mm -hmm. I agree. And to that point for all of our listeners that, haven't discovered the Snapchat desktop filters, uh, I highly recommend that you go check those out. We'll put a show note, we'll, we'll put a link in the show notes, um, but you can really lighten the mood uh, during a conversation by being a potato when you show up. Just yeah. know how to turn it just off. Just know how to turn it off. <laughs> or not, or not, or just, just decide that that's, that's you for the next 30 days. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's great. Well, Will and Amy, thank you so much for coming on Floor 9 this week uh, and talking to us about e-commerce, retail, shopping behaviors, uh, and everything in between. Uh, so thank you, um, and we'll talk soon. Thanks for having us. Yep. Thank you. Thanks, Scott. And now I want to hand it over to Hamish for an interview with Ben Jeffries, the CEO of Influencer.com, for a conversation on the influencer industry during these times. Hamish, take it away. So thanks, Scott and Chad. So I'm here today to talk with Ben Jeffries, the um, CEO of Influencer.com, to have a chat about how the influencer landscape is, is changing at the moment. So Ben, thanks very much for joining us. Um, we're super happy to have you with us. Hi there, guys. A little bit about Ben, just before we get started. Ben co-founded Influencer.com in 2017 with Casper Lee. Prior to that, Ben was one of these tech guys who dropped out of university to set up his tech platform. And they set up Influencer.com, which is a data-driven technology platform combined with influencer strategy to really help brands be successful in the influencer space. One little fact about Ben I think is super interesting. Ben is also one of uh, Forbes' 30 under 30 people to watch. So again, very happy to have you. Right now, influencers feel so front and center to what's going on at the moment. And 
social feels like one of those platforms that's a big beneficiary in terms of of traffic can you give us from your perspective just a little perspective about you know what's going on out there in terms of you know inside the space you know what's up and down who's kind of getting the most etc yeah absolutely um firstly obviously thank you very much um for, for having me on today really really excited um to talk to you about all of this um to go on to i guess what's going on within the influence marketing space at the moment i think it's a really really interesting period i think you know right now without a doubt we are experiencing experiencing quite a few different things i think without a shadow of a doubt it's quite clear that you know some advertisers um at the moment are pausing spends and that's simply because um you know the types of brands that they are you know the types of um, campaigns that they're running they can no longer run in the same fashion um, but on the flip side, we are seeing a lot of brands um, taking this opportunity to still get quite a lot of purpose-led um, messaging out. Um, I think that's really, really key. I think where brands right now, um, especially within influencers, influencer marketing, are really seeing the strengths um, is in the purpose-led messaging from the creators who have those strongest communities. I think right now um, we know that creators who have built these communities um, have a lot of trust from their followers so you know in times of i guess difficulty right you know right now people are, are turning to i guess different sources for information um so that's where brands are really um i guess taking advantage of um at the moment um in a, in a positive manner as well within the influencer space at, at the moment we're seeing you know I, I mentioned briefly earlier that some of the advertisers are pausing spends um that's because they're pausing the spends through um, the influencer channels, but they might still be actually using the influencers for other means. So we're seeing a mass rise um, in advertisers um, wanting to spend on branded content, but actually produced by the creators. Um, that's just because, you know, creators right now um, are these masters, I guess you could say, in content creation, and they can use these assets for whether that be their paid social or other forms of advertising as well at the moment. So we're kind of seeing I guess, different approaches using creators right now in the space. Um, another thing which I think is fantastic, which we're seeing as well in the space, is we're seeing a lot of brands coming to support creators. Um, I think right now it's you know, quite clear that for a lot of creators, um, especially, let's say, within the travel industry, um, their usual sources of income um, are on pause because they can't do the trips. So it's really great to see some sort of brands being quite innovative um, in how they're working with creators to still support them during this message. I think the key thing here is um, it's everyone showing their true colours, right? And people will remember brands, really, how they portray themselves during this period. Can we dig into some of those in a bit more detail? I think you raised a few interesting points there. The first was this idea about advertisers maybe pausing spend somewhere, but using creators to develop um, content for other channels. That feels That feels super interesting. Are you seeing examples of where brands are using that as a way to be more to be more in the moment and to be more kind of dynamic with their messaging absolutely I, th I think you know what creators do offer is producing content through them is much cheaper than your traditional sources of producing content um, and you can obviously get content produced at scale very quickly and that's the exciting part about this i think it's pretty obvious right now that people are you know, spending a lot more time on their phone and a lot more time on social media. So advertisers who are pumping spend through you know, 
Facebook advertising, Instagram ad- advertising in the traditional senses are needing a lot of assets to prevent consumers having ad fatigue where they're getting bored of these assets and then not actually responding positively. So they're turning to the creators to basically help produce these assets en masse to put them out into obviously different sort of areas. So when you see so when you see brands doing that successfully, does that require a different kind of content studio model almost? Are they... Are they bringing the creators into their creative development process or how is that working? What we're seeing is now more than ever where creators are being much more involved within that planning and create stage um, in a campaign. And the reason being is it's such a, um, I guess, challenging time right now that people want to make sure that they're not being insensitive by any stretch of imagination. And they're wanting to make sure that the messaging they're going out is going to have the right impact on the audiences um, that, you know, to those who are seeing it. So they're asking the creators for, honestly, advice in how to ensure that positive message. Um, So I think it's fantastic to see because it's helping to create real messaging during this time. And I think that's a really key thing that brands should be doing right now, just keeping it real. Yeah, I think that's so interesting. I think, you know, one of the I think one of the defining things of where we are at the moment is that the the kind of speed of change is so is so quick and fluid, even, you know, day to day, of course, but even kind of within the day. So I think this idea about having purpose, like the right content for the moment is is super interesting. So that feels like a great, a great way for brands to think about doing that. You also talked about about messaging. And I was really interested because I was reading an article you, that you wrote recently. Um, I think where you had you surveyed creators asking them to ask their communities if they were interested in advertising from brands. And I think you found that was a, a resounding yes. And so I'd love to hear more about that. What we basically wanted to do is basically just understand how consumers were going to react to creators posting, because we did a number of um, campaigns where we were adding disclaimers to post, where it was making it clear um, that you know certain photos were taken before various lockdowns to not create negative sentiment around that. And then what we wanted to do is, after those campaigns, we wanted to actually get the creators to ask their followers how they would start feeling should they be still working with brands during this lockdown period. Um, Because it's really, really important, you know, that the creators and their followers' trust is not broken. And what we were finding is um, a really positive rate of, you know, the followers being very proud and very supportive of the creators still working with brands. They're seeing, you know, a lot of the self-employed um, finding it difficult to obviously keep up their earnings. And they're very, very supportive um, of when brands are, you know, continuing that and not letting creators be affected. And I think it's also fantastic that the sentiment stays positive when brands aren't necessarily being like opportunist. Because I think that's a real big issue is when um, brands try and capitalise on the situation, but try and capitalise it in the wrong way. Um, so it's much more important um, that the brands are said, you know, being real, keeping calm and lightening the mood. I think morale is really, really important in messaging as well. Also, in this area of purpose, I think it's interesting because, you know, we're dealing with different things. We're dealing with definitely being empathetic to the moment, but also as brands trying to make sure we're we're selling where we can. We're also dealing with kind of crisis versus new normal so in a way yes we need to be empathetic to the crisis but one thing that brands can do is they can also help consumers feel that this moment is almost more normalized to get us out of that kind of that kind of scary moment so are you seeing it's just purpose advertising or are you seeing like a blend of of different types of messaging and content is is being most successful 
what we're seeing um you know right now is definitely some purpose-led messaging where brands are perhaps changing what their usual creative is i mean you know we work with perno ricard as one of our accounts and perno ricard obviously um one of the brands which we traditionally advertise is Absolute Vodka. And right now they've stopped the production of their Absolute Vodka to be able to make hand sanitizers. So what's that then in turn done is obviously change the messaging that they're trying to push out. But what we are also seeing is going back to what my kind of original thing I was saying around the branded content becoming much more you know prominent, but also brand supporting creators. I think we're getting a lot of purpose-led messaging which will then in turn become much of the norm. So I, th- I, th- I think as brands start capitalizing on using creators as more of their, you know, their branded content assets um, generators almost, they'll start using them more and more um, as time comes because they realize the scale and the price um, that they can get these creators to produce these assets at. How do you help brands manage that balance then between purposeful content versus brand more kind of brand let's call it kind of selling content versus even just you know entertainment or even escapism content i mean is there a way in which you think about helping brands to manage the right balance of those different elements i think you know it's a really really i guess fine line the key parts are as i you know was saying earlier is keeping it real and making sure that you're adding clarity and that you're raising morale and that you're not necessarily focusing too much on coronavirus or if you try and make messages around that it can get quite overwhelming because quite a lot of advertisers are doing it right now a lot of advertisers are doing it wrong so an an example could be that we work with dominoes right and with dominoes what they're trying to do is trying to encourage um, obviously people staying at, at home so the whole idea around their you know two for tuesday is now turning into like date night reinvented where it's consumers actually coming you know if you were actually using indoors it's, it's just a different type of concept and that type of marketing messaging is fantastic yeah that's great that's a great example i think it's i think that's nice i think the idea about keeping it real almost like a, a, a like a mix of brand dna the moment plus the consumers you're talking about those those three things working together feels like a really nice recipe for that what are you seeing in terms of in terms of just, you know, more at the kind of tactical level from like a messaging perspective, are you seeing different formats being used? Are you seeing a shift towards more like live stories? How is that playing out? Yeah, we're definitely seeing um, more live. I think right now people are kind of like welcoming distractions, I guess you could say. I think, you know, right now, a lot of the live content people are uh, tuning into is often the news. And it's getting quite, you know, unfortunately, negatively, repetitively. Um, So people are thinking, okay, well, what else can, you know, we sort of watch live and sort of keep engaged. So creators are being used, especially on brand live channels um, right now to start giving out messages. Um, I mean, you know, even ourselves, we're doing something like that. So tomorrow we're having um, some of our creators do workouts live on our own Instagram live just to give back to you know, consumers um, and give back to our audience. But we're also seeing that with brands. Um, so we have one with Superdry on Friday as well, where creators are going live and basically just answering questions that um, the followers are asking. And it's just keeping it sort of relatable and real. I think that's the key message here is real. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I love that. I mean, because that feels like that really feels like the power of the channel working at its best, which feels like such a good opportunity. 
Um, and then let's talk about that third thing you mentioned at the very start. So you talked about brand supporting creators. I did read somewhere about, I think maybe you published a piece talking about a predicted 22% increase in money going into social channels. Um, how are you seeing the business side of the, of, of the influencer marketplace working out right now? Yeah, I think um, as I've sort of alluded to, I guess, um, in answering some of these questions so far, um, a lot of the you know the creators right now are very open to the work. I think right now they're very much um, realizing that with certain advertisers as well, it's not just whether they'll get the the actual jobs now, but it's when they'll get paid. Because a lot of you know agencies and brands they're holding onto funds for obvious reasons to support cash flow, which then in turn means that the creators know that they might not get paid for you know ninety, one hundred and twenty days, which is kind of the norm in certain, you know, in certain businesses, but um, for creators, obviously, it's not the norm. So it means that they're much more open to, you know, working with brands at the moment. Um, and with that, um, I think, you know, we may see prices dipping with creators. I think what we'll see is, yeah, prices being a little bit more competitive. So things like, you know, the CPIs and the CPUs of the campaigns being much more attractive for advertisers to start putting their ad dollars through. One thing that strikes me about the marketplace right now is kind of there's this disruption going on, of course. And and when I look at influencer, I sort of see that there's some celebrity, some more typical kind of Hollywood style celebrities are almost adopting more influencer kind of type behaviors and really trying to looks like they're trying to build their follower followings up. I also saw I read somewhere that um, I thought this is amazing. Uh, uh, in China, a store, uh, a cosmetic store had to shutter its doors and they had a hundred people who worked in the store and they actually turned them into influencers to boost traffic to the store's website. So are you sort of seeing the space expanding in terms of number of people coming into the influencer marketplace? And you, you're certainly seeing much more people, um, I guess, becoming content creators as such. Um, I think it's quite clear how quickly TikTok has sort of risen over the last few weeks to see, you know, the number of celebrities, if, as you said, but also like even the number of sports stars who currently right now, you know, obviously are on um, playing you know, their games at the moment. So they're developing perhaps more entertainment style careers. Obviously, that's probably more just for their own fun as such. But, you know, it's really, really interesting to see. And, you know, I think we'll see other brands cap you know, capitalising on that because a lot of these traditional celebrities and, the, and a lot of these traditional sports stars as well wouldn't often work um, with brands. Um, normally on like an individual post basis or a few post basis, you tend to find that the celebrities and the traditional sports stars tend to work on the longer ambassadorship programs. But I think now, because they have the time to actually create the content um, rather than obviously have their, you know, firm training schedules and their firm, um, you know, sporting schedules and, and whatnot, they actually now have the time and are much more open to. So I think that's really exciting. On the example you said about um, the beauty store in China, I think, you know, it's crazy. But I think um, any ways which right now people are harnessing the power of social media, um, you know, we're going to see more and more of them. You briefly touched on it earlier, but, you know, the power of affiliate marketing, I think it's going to be exploding as well right now as, um creators um are wanting to again you know broaden out their um revenue opportunities so it sounds like there's big opportunities for brands at the moment to start thinking about influencer are they getting in 
into it in, in the first place or even getting into it in different ways. It sounds like you're talking about different business models um, as well as different opportunities with different types of talent to harness this potential. Tell me something. So um, for brands that don't have an influencer strategy right now, how, how would you advise them to get up and running and leverage the interest that there is in social media at the moment? Right now, brands can definitely um, leverage the, 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 uh, you know, the interest in social right now on multiple different forms. Um, you know, from the very basic level, obviously we briefly touched on it, but on the affiliate level, as I sort of briefly touched on, I think creators right now are trying to broaden their revenue opportunities. So they're going to be much more interested in working on, you know, cost per acquisitions and cost per downloads to which they previously perhaps weren't interested in. I think that's one side of the coin. Obviously, on the other side of the coin, how brands can really tackle this. There was a tweet, actually, which I um, I think it's the best ever tweet I've ever seen, which was during the halftime of the Super Bowl, I think it was about two years ago. I think it says like, you know, a brand's paying X million dollars um, right now to be paying for their halftime Super Bowl advert, whereas right now you're scrolling through Twitter. And what the whole purpose is there is that a lot of people um, have shifted budget over now to Twitter, but a, a lot more now suddenly see the power of social and people's you know, energy and time are absorbed into social. So if they can get the creators who, I guess, harness um, those communities and have that stronghold over um, the communities, they'll realize the power even more so. And it will allow influence marketing, I guess, to grow up from perhaps what um, it's been labeled as before as a rather amateur form of marketing. I think you'll start seeing brands having much more confidence in it. And then in the longer run, seeing brands commit much more spend to it. That's awesome. So it feels like a real, a real kind of moment of truth for influencer marketing. Absolutely. The real moment of truth. So, Ben, you mentioned TikTok. I'm glad you mentioned TikTok. I don't think you can do a conversation these days about social media without a little bit about TikTok. I live in a, I live in a house with a young teenage daughter. And, and certainly for that generation, it's all, this is all, this is all about and TikTok. So tell me about like platforms and growth and which platforms are doing well. Is TikTok a big winner at the moment? You know, who's doing well out of all the platforms? Yeah, I mean, TikTok's certainly doing well at the moment. I think the whole element which people are getting really excited about TikTok is this kind of like challenge element where essentially someone sets off a trend and people try and replicate the trend. Um, so because I guess a lot of people have a lot more time right now, people are, I guess, taking part in these challenges much more. Um, that said, obviously, it, you know, I have seen some examples where brands are being very, very cringe, I guess is the way to, to say, where they've tried to start their own challenges and they just haven't really set off. Um, so I would always advise if you are going to try and start off a challenge as a brand to definitely get creators involved in the creative process, because ultimately the creators know what will actually go viral and what will start off the trend. Um, but aside from TikTok, um, I have to actually regretfully admit I actually created my first ever one on the weekend, um, which was incredibly embarrassing, <laughs> but I felt it was important so that I could tell people truthfully that I knew the plants. So talking about challenges, I heard that you um, did a recent challenge for the WHO around hand washing. Is that, is that right? With that, it was, it was trying to encourage as many creators as possible to essentially just promote washing their hands. But I mean, that, that sounds quite boring. But essentially what the creative was is 
because you know you, you have to wash your hands for at least 20 seconds with hand sanitizer or at least 40 seconds with a hand wash um it was what you can do to fill the time while washing your hands so we had you know some musicians um start singing um during it or we had various people um kind of just like making up new hobbies during those periods so that was quite an exciting campaign to work on um and it's great to see actually in that instinct it wasn't just us who worked on it we saw a number of other influencer platforms and players also work on on, on that campaign and it was kind of great to see people kind of set aside their differences to all come working together on one unified goal that's awesome is there is there a is there a challenge two planned by the who i'd love to hear what they're what they have coming up next do you know what they're working on or um i don't know about a challenge two as such but my actual co-founder um casper is launching um something which he's getting a lot of creators from all around the world um to all openly talk about what they're most looking forward to once um i guess this isolation period is um is over to try and encourage i guess people to look forward to the positives and such oh that's super interesting i'd love to see what comes from that uh, at UN, we're talking to our clients both about how do we respond in this current moment but also how do we plan for the recovery to, to be ready for that when it when it comes i'd love to see what comes from that and see what your creators are talking about wanting to do when that recovery phase happens I think that takes us on to a really interesting uh, next question, which is a lot of the stuff we've been talking about so far has been very much about responding and, and, and being in the moment, which of course is a great strength of socials. But if you think a bit more broadly than that, are there things you're talking about with brands to think about not just how they plan for this current moment, but also how they should be starting to think or plan towards um, the recovery phase? So what we're working with, um, with a number of brands at the moment, I mean, th- there's quite a lot of, you know, large sporting events, which have obviously been postponed or cancelled and things like, you know, the Olympics, the Euros over in Europe, um, even Wimbledon today as well in England, um, you know, has all been postponed and, and, and cancelled. So we are still working with brands on what the activations will look like once those actually do occur um but of course it's it's while those things are now being pushed back what they can now rethink their strategies are for now because a lot of brands had previously not necessarily planned for what messaging should be now because the sporting events had sort of been their main focal point and focus point now um so you know we're working with you know a number of betting clients for example um on what their strategy is obviously with the lack of sporting events and, and how we can you know perhaps work with certain creators um to sort of amplify messages around casino um we're working with a number of food and drinks companies which isn't obviously their traditional route um of you know trying to encourage people to go to the stores but is it how they can work in partnership with various you know um food delivery services such as like Uber Eats, um, sort of amplify messages through there. Um, so there is definitely sort of a shift in messaging on both what's happening in the future, but also, I guess, how brands can suddenly re-strategize in the present. Awesome. I love that. I think that's also super smart. Ben, I think we're getting towards the end of this conversation. I find it super interesting. You've given me lots of nuggets of super 
smart things to be thinking about and opportunities to be talking about. If you were to think about some top tips, just to kind of summarise this conversation, if you were to think about some top tips for brands in influence at the moment, what would you be um, advising them? Um, I think the top tips, I would say, I mean, number one, I think the common theme I've said is be real. Um, I think that's always so important, um, you know, in within influence marketing, because authenticity is one of the biggest parts. But I think now more than ever, being real is, um, you know, the utmost importance as such. Other sort of top tips is, you know, creators are wanting to get involved within the creative process. They're wanting to give their advice based on what their followers and their communities um, are saying to them. So invite them into that, you know, that creative process because they're there. Um, and I think, you know, the last sort of, I guess, top tip I would say is, you know, right now um, is a very interesting period where people will remember how brands show their true colors. So it's really, really important that um, the messaging that brands are giving out as such um, is one which they're going to be proud of within a year's time and three years time because creators um, and yeah, yeah, consumers are very much... And then there's one that. here which could be a fun one to end on, which is, uh, have you seen any fun <laughs> video conference hacks I think I've seen quite a lot of conference call disasters <laughs> floating about. I think from, you know, people leaving their Zoom chats on when they're, you know, when they've gone to the toilet or just unusual events, should I say, happening around on a conference call. So I think <laughs> my Lots. ultimate hack would be just make sure that your video is off when you think it's off um, <laughs> and make sure your mic is off as well when you think it's off because I've heard people talking about various things on webinars and conference calls which certainly we're not mentioned we're not supposed to be mentioned <laughs> awesome all right well Ben I just want to say thank you very much I know that you know at this time we're all so busy not just managing work but juggling everything else that's going on um, and so we you were, we really appreciate your time um, taking time out of your busy schedule to talk to us. It's been a really enlightening um, conversation. I've really enjoyed it. And I think you've given us lots of juicy things to think about. So thank you very much. No worries. Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, really, really appreciate it. And yeah, um, let's see how long this crazy sort of situation lasts, but hopefully um, everyone's keeping safe and well. Well, Adam, I think those were some great conversations we had uh, this week from e-commerce and shopping. Um, special guest host Chad Stoller was in the house. And then, of course, Hamish uh, and Ben had a fantastic uh, conversation about influencers um, during this crisis. Yeah, great stuff. So do you want to talk about some news? Yeah, let's talk about the news. So do you want to start us off with the, uh, I guess, your favorite piece of news this week that uh, came out by Microsoft? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the interesting uh, pivots this week uh, is that Microsoft is starting to roll out Teams for consumers. Um, so obviously, Teams is, you know, one of the the apps that has seen a big uh, uptick in usage uh, in our current crisis. Uh, and, uh, the you know, Microsoft's really capitalizing on that to try to roll it out towards two consumers, which is interesting because... Microsoft, outside of Xbox and gaming, has really been focused on expanding their enterprise functionality and, and enterprise services uh, for the past 
five or so years. Um, they've really sort of retreated from uh, you know being a consumer-facing company in a lot of ways. Uh, but this is an interesting pivot back to that. It's interesting you know use of the the current surge in popularity of Teams to try to get people using Microsoft products in their their personal lives. And it's not just Teams is sort of the the biggest announcement uh, here, but it's actually, uh, they're actually totally rebranding, moving away from Office 365 to a Microsoft 365 uh, positioning and then product suite, uh, again, to sort of refocus on the consumer space. So it's interesting because it seems like that enterprise focus and strategy, uh, turns out that was that was temporary. That was not a, a pivot of the company permanently. They wanted to obviously focus and, and double down on, on the enterprise stuff, but they're now you know moving back into the consumer space. So it'll be interesting to see how successful they are with that and how much people want to use a product like Teams in their personal life, uh, or do people, you know, want sort of some separation and different different products and different tools? Yeah, absolutely. And just to put some numbers behind that, um, in Italy, for example, Microsoft Teams has seen a seven hundred and seventy five percent increase uh, <laughs> in in monthly users. Um, as well as Teams has seen a total of over 900 million meetings and calling minutes a day, which are generated by um, 44 million daily active users uh, in the space of a single week, uh, which is pretty pretty incredible growth there. Um, and to that point too, it's not just Microsoft Teams, Zoom has seen incredible growth. I believe it, Ben Thompson yeah. quoted this morning that it was, it was about, they went from 10 million um, monthly active users to over 200 million in the span of like two weeks. That was daily active users, actually. So it's actually even more impressive. That's which, yeah, those Microsoft numbers look great, uh, and they are great for Microsoft. Uh, but uh, you know, Zoom is uh, again sort of really the breakout star uh, of the moment. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if if people stick with Zoom uh, going forward, or if this is a, a temporary thing. I think you know the 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 downside for Zoom is they, there's been a huge spotlight on a lot of their security and privacy um, policies yep. and and. Yep. and uh, I think that you know they just they just put out something last night saying um, that they're gonna you know sort of double down the focus on that after they obviously spent uh, the past month really focusing on being able to scale. Um, so we'll see. I, you know I think they're doing the right thing now, so they might uh, be able to turn turn the public sentiment around a little bit. And regardless of public sentiment, people are still using it. So everybody loves those Zoom backgrounds. Um, but moving on, our next piece of news: Walmart and Amazon have suspended their marketing deals with digital media firms. Um, so for example, Walmart and Amazon have suspended their marketing deals with digital media firms such as BuzzFeed uh, and Vox News. Um, and this is pretty surprising, I'd say, um, but it does make sense given the fact that um, a lot of those publishers are, are there for like affiliate, and that's driving e-commerce sales. And um, it seems like a lot of these companies, Walmart and Amazon, are having a lot of logistical issues currently right now. So yes. having having <laughs> they do not need help <laughs> generating demand, <laughs> right? So having paid media um, drive to their stores, um, you know, is a bit overwhelming uh, currently. Um, so that's just kind of an interesting piece of news. But again, it goes back and kind of shows that uh, how this surge of demand um, from like these e-commerce providers uh, does have ripple effects into like the larger digital media ecosystem uh, that we're seeing uh, today, especially on the publisher side, knowing that, um, you know, affiliate marketing is a big revenue driver for companies like BuzzFeed and Fox Media. 
Another interesting thing that uh, happened this week, um, we are starting to see um, NBA players are starting to play uh, head-to-head in the first uh, NBA 2K Players Tournament. Um, so we've got professional you know, basketball players playing in uh, NBA 2K, um, which is uh, pretty interesting. This is going to air on uh, ESPN, who is obviously looking for content to, now that uh, live sports are, are pretty much canceled. Um, and you know, we were speculating on this last week, and it seems like it is coming true that uh, esports has really stepping up uh, to fill some of the gaps of uh, live sports and in programming. Yeah, they're, they're trying to diversify their portfolio away from just marble racing. Uh, so all the best of luck to, <laughs> to ESPN. Um, next up, we have an article from 9to5Google. Uh, YouTube is planning to launch a new shorts format to counter TikTok. Uh, this is interesting uh, just because you know we've seen an increase in users downloading TikTok uh, as they are stuck at home and looking for something to do. Uh, we've actually also seen uh, Snapchat make a recent announcement that they're going to have their stories format be available to third-party um, social apps and other developers to actually integrate that stories format into uh, those applications. Um, so it seems like, again, like there is just a, a real interest to kind of capture this short-form format um, and provide some sort of solution, whether that's to creators to kind of create content while they're stuck at home uh, and just give people that are in their homes um, a way to kind of consume uh, the shorter form content on new platforms, whether that, whether that's TikTok, whether that's going to be on YouTube now, you know, through Snapchat stories, uh, the new Byte app, which notably hasn't had a lot of press um, in today's uh, news cycle. So TBD on how well uh, they're currently doing um, in this in this new marketplace. Yeah, I mean, YouTube basically needs to do this. They need to uh, ensure that their creators stay on their platform. Um, and for a lot of them, you know, the more invested ones, if they are given tools to make new kinds of content like shorts, uh, they will probably do it. And it, it's easier for them to do that on YouTube rather than to try to establish a new audience somewhere else. If anything, the question is going to be around timing. Like how soon can they get this into market? Because the longer they wait, the more people have a chance to uh, build up an audience on TikTok instead. So speaking of something that actually did launch this week, um, Spotify uh, has launched a new standalone app just for kids. Um, so this is a, a sep- totally separate app from the normal Spotify. Um, it has 8,000 curated songs for uh, children uh, three and older. Uh, it's rolled out in the US, Canada, and France right now. Um, and it's also got handpicked uh, playlists by editors specifically for, for kids. Uh, the interesting thing is that there are no ads in this version of Spotify um, and that uh, they, they say there are no, there's no uh, data collection either. So they're, they're, um, I, I suppose they have to be tracking number of plays so that they can uh, compensate the artists. But uh, other than that, there's nothing tied to the user account. Um, so interesting, uh, you know, rollout. It's a good time for this right now because, uh, as we know, there are uh, about 32.5 million children home from school just in the U.S. Uh, I don't know Canada and France, you know, even bigger. So um, you know, it's a good time. Parents are looking for things to uh, to distract their kids, to entertain their kids, to educate their kids, um, especially the parents who are, are working from home who need, you know, they can now plop them down with some headphones and and some some cool playlists on Spotify. They have a wash your hands playlist. Ah, um, so, <laughs> so if you're looking for a way to uh, make sure that uh, your kid is actually washing their hands for the recommended amount of time by the CDC, uh, you can put on this playlist. Uh, and it's a really fun way to kind of entertain them, but also keep them keep them safe. So uh, that's great. Uh, and last, uh, we had a a pretty um, unexpected acquisition from Apple. So Apple. Uh, a, 
has acquired the hyper-local weather app, Dark Sky. Um, they will be integrating that into, uh, I think, like the larger Apple ecosystem. And notably, they're shutting down the Android application of it. Um, so Android users will not be able to use Dark Sky anymore. Yeah, I know that's gotten a lot of people on on Twitter upset, <laughs> um, but uh, I think this is this is interesting. <laughs> I I am a big fan of Dark Sky. I have loved them for years. Um, not necessarily the app, which I, I don't actually don't use the Dark Sky app. I use a, a third party app that uses their their APIs. Um, so it's the same data. It's just in, in a different app. But um, Dark Sky is super interesting because when they started, you know, ten years ago or so, they uh, they actually developed from the ground up their own original algorithms for predicting uh, predicting the weather, which no one had really done for decades. Um, lots of folks uh, sort of ride on top of the, the government data. Um, there's a few other sources of data that you can gain access to um, if, if, if you pay for it. Uh, but uh, it was cool to see somebody take, you know, launch a company taking a new approach to uh, predicting the weather. The interesting thing about Dark Sky is they're really good at that hyper-local uh, in the near-term weather. Um, so they're really good at telling you it's going to rain in a half an hour. Uh, they're less good uh, when you get past the like 48-hour mark in terms of the sort of long-term predictions. Mm -hmm. I think that, I know people are upset about the Android app. I think that uh, what is likely to happen is that Dark Sky, uh, their APIs are likely to get integrated into Apple's platforms. So if you want to build an iPhone weather app, you can you know, access it, it'll be built into the system. Um, and, and that that data will be available either free or very, you know, much, much cheaper uh, for, for Apple developers. And I think they will eventually open it up to uh, web developers and Android developers as well. And they'll probably just uh, charge them a bit more. Um, because weather data is actually super expensive. Um, if you make a weather app, uh, you either have to uh, be selling lots of ads uh, to uh, account for it, or you have to be charging a, sort of a reoccurring subscription price because every time you check the weather, it does trigger uh, something that, that, that the developer has to pay for. Um, so I see this as sort of maybe Apple uh, wanting to eliminate that uh, cost on their side, wanting to offer something for their developers uh, that they can maybe discount because it's Apple and they can afford to. Uh, and, uh, you know, um, I don't know, integrating it more in deeply into the platforms in, the, in those ways. But I do think eventually it'll be available for, for Android and, uh, and the web as well. The, the other thing that I that kind of, you know, super speculative uh, that some folks have called out is um, iPhones already have a uh, barometer in them. Um, so if Apple were to add a thermometer into future iPhones, they could start capturing real-time data from, you know, hundreds of, from a billion uh, devices almost uh, around the world. And that could be, uh, you know, really build on that or original mission of Dark Sky to really rethink from the ground up how weather data is is captured and predicted. Uh, that could be, it's super speculative, of course, and I think that would it would be years from now if it happened, uh, but it would could be a super interesting competitive advantage and just like change to to how we think about weather data. Because they are in your pocket, these phones, it's it'll be moving. Uh, it could be like a moving weather station, you know, having th a, a moving thermometer in your pocket for hyper-local weather uh, to kind of get them the most accurate hyper-local uh, information possible to predict the weather. Could be. Um, with that, 
listeners, that's a wrap on this week's episode of Floor 9. Uh, if you like what you heard, share, tell a friend. Uh, you can follow us on social at IPG Lab for Instagram and Twitter. Let us know if you have any questions. Feel free to reach out to me or Adam. Uh, Adam is adam at ipglab.com. I am scott.elchison at ipglab.com. So again, reach out to Adam. His his email is easier to remember. Um, And we'll be back next week with another episode of Floor 9. So thank you and talk soon. (laughs) 